would imagine that if you were a fan of DC Comics in the 1960s, a team-up between their characters and those of their arch-rivals from across the block Marvel Comics seemed like a pipe dream. Despite talent-swapping companies on a regular basis and a generally cordial relationship between editors, writers and artists, the very idea of there being a détente between the companies long enough to create a story that unified some of the biggest characters into a glorious whole seemed fanciful. As such, the writers started sneaking unofficial crossovers into the comics. The Avengers met the Squadron Supreme, a thinly veiled version of the Justice League, and Superman met the Kooky Quartet, Cobweb Kid and the Submoron takeoffs of the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man and the Submariner in an issue of The Inferior Five. The comics creators also inserted themselves into each other's stories at both companies. There were regular gatherings at the Rutland Halloween Parade in Vermont, and writers Steve Englehart and Denny O'Neill coordinated an off-book meet-up in issues of Thor, Justice League, Batman and the Avengers, amongst others. For a full-on team-up between the characters, though, readers will have to wait until 1976. Whilst Marvel and DC had co-published an adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, it was only when Superman met Spider-Man in a glorious 96-page treasury-sized extravaganza that the floodgates truly opened. Five years later, Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man was followed by Batman vs. The Incredible Hulk, and a second Superman-Spider-Man meetup, this time including appearances by Wonder Woman and The Hulk. A 1982 meeting between the X-Men and the Teen Titans was to be the final Marvel DC team-up for a long time, causing a second Teen Titans X-Men story to be canned before work had started on it. An unfortunate casualty of all this was a planned team-up between the Avengers and the Justice League, which ran into internal politicking and was cancelled after George Perez had already started working on the project. 20 pages were drawn, which Perez later sold to artist Rob Leffield, who then sold them on in piecemeal fashion to a variety of third-party buyers, to the point where we no longer know where they all are. This rather public falling out led to no crossover events being published between Marvel and DC for the rest of the 1980s and into the early 90s, although Batman's rising popularity saw him meet other characters such as the Predator, Judge Dredd and Spawn. There was then a thawing in the Cold War that was Marvel and DC's editorial policy, and in the 1990s things started happening again. Initially, it was Batman who led the charge, his surging popularity in the decade of floppy fringes and 90210 seeing him confront Marvel's inexplicably popular non-hero, The Punisher. This led to more cross-publications in the mid-90s, both obvious and not. Darkseid clashed with Galactus, the Silver Surfer met both Superman and the Green Lantern, and Spider-Man met Batman twice, all culminating in the ultimate confrontation, Marvel vs. DC. This was a four-part miniseries with the outcomes of each battle decided by the readers. There was also the Amalgam Universe, which merged two Marvel and DC characters together to create characters such as Super Soldier, Superman crossed with Captain America, and Dark Claw, Wolverine and Batman. Marvel vs. DC is so typically 90s that you can practically smell these stonewashed denim, and as such it leans towards the silly, but there's no denying it's a lot of fun if you're of a right mind. 
This spirit of cooperation continued into the latter half of the 90s. Batman met Captain America in World War II. Daredevil teamed up with Batman. Twice. Superman met both the Incredible Hulk and the Fantastic Four, the latter of which was the first Treasury edition in years. Sadly, when Joe Quesada took over Marvel and Dan DiDio took the editorship at DC, this spirit of cooperation ended. Both men became rather bullish. Quesada more so than DiDio, it has to be said, that these kinds of crossovers weren't necessary anymore. Although both men relented for one last hurrah, an epic meet-up between the Avengers and the Justice League in 2003. Since then, nothing. Crossovers have happened with other properties, though. The Aliens, Predator and Terminator have all met Superman and or Batman, and the crew of the USS Enterprise has met both Doctor Who and the X-Men. In one of the strangest intercompany team-ups, the Punisher went to Riverdale and met Archie. With the purchase of Marvel by Disney, the likelihood of them agreeing to a meeting with DC characters again, given that they are owned by rival movie studio Warner Brothers, is remote. So let's look at what they did produce, and rank them. Remember, lovely listeners, this is my list. Yours will no doubt be different. My list will hopefully annoy you enough to do your own. So without further ado, my favourite Marvel and DC team-ups from least favourite to must-read. Coming in at number 18, DC vs. Marvel, Marvel vs. DC, issues 1 through 4, and The Amalgam Age of Comics by various different creators. DC vs. Marvel has its moments, but let's be honest, it's a letdown. Like Star Trek Generations, it's intimate when it should be epic, one-on-one when it should be all-out war, and letting the audience choose the outcome for some of the battles was dumb. If we've learned anything from Brexit, it's that decisions of this magnitude should not be left to the general public. DC vs. Marvel is also so very 90s, and not all in a good way. Characters aren't the iconic versions, just because the 90s was all about moving these characters off stage and replacing them with younger models. As such, we have Jubilee, an X-Men only people who grew up with the 90s cartoon care about, teamed up with the third Robin. Spider-Man is Ben Riley, not Peter Parker, and Storm is allowed to beat Wonder Woman, a travesty that should not have been allowed to stand. The Amalgam universe that spun out of this has some merit and a number of fun mashups, but overall this is very dated today, and as such, doesn't quite hold up as well as other crossovers. Number 17, Punisher Batman Lake of Fire, written by Denny O'Neill with art by Barry Kitson and James Pascoe. I expected more from noted Batman writer Denny O'Neill than the old Poison the Water Supply plot, but sadly that's what I got. We also got another chapter in the Batman Nightfall saga, as this is Jean-Paul Vallée in the Bat Leathers, not Bruce Wayne. As such, this is a massive waste of time. I don't want to see the pretenders in these stories. I want the real deal. The art is very good, but overall this hasn't aged at all well nowadays, simply for being so tied in to then-current and now completely redundant continuity. Number 16, Batman Daredevil, King of New York, written by Alan Grant, with art by Eduardo Barreto. Barreto's art is the highlight of this rather out-of-character tale involving the Skurker and the Kingpin gun-running in Gotham. Grant seems to be writing 60s Daredevil, all quips and witty asides, and Batman takes a bit of a back seat. It's not bad, not really, although some of it reads as slightly campy and out-of-character, but it's not that good either, and really not a worthy story of these two titans crossing over. 
Number 15, Superman Silver Surfer, written by George Perez, with art by Ron Lim and Terry Austin. We all have that comic. One we've wanted for a while, but never been able to secure a copy of before it starts commanding stupid money on the aftermarket. Why it commands stupid money is a, a mystery. There's nothing about it that signifies its value. No new or hot characters, no much sought-after creators. Nothing. Such was it with Superman Silver Surfer, a book I spent about six years trying to track down. Every time I saw it, the dealer wanted more than a tenner for it. Not a price I was willing to pay, because I am notoriously cheap. I'd seen it once in a pound bin, but I saw it just after someone else had pulled it out. Never have I wished I could do a Jedi mind trick more so I could will the bastard to put it back, but it was to no avail. It was the comic he was looking for. So after all that, and after finally getting my hands on a copy for not too bad a price, why is it ranked so low? After all, it's a decent creative team, characters I like a lot, and is nicely presented. Well, lovely listener, it's it's just so ordinary. A DC Marvel crossover should be big. End of the universe, Doctor Doom will kill everybody! Big! It shouldn't be two goofy characters, in this case DC's Mr. Mixes Piddlick and Marvel's The Impossible Man, pulling silly pranks and goofing off. Now, there is something to be said for having fun, but that leads me to another thing DC Marvel crossovers should be. Unique. There's nothing in this story that couldn't have been done with the Fantastic Four. Superman is largely irrelevant to the overall narrative, other than Mixius Pitalik being his adversary, and he just happens to share a lot of similarities with the Impossible Man. It's all just, here's that word again, ordinary. It's not really fair to rank this on expectations versus reality, but whilst it isn't awful, it was a letdown. It's too frivolous for something that should be epic. Number 14, Green Lantern, Silver Surfer, Unholy Alliances, written by Ron Mars, with art by Daryl Banks and Terry Austin. The stakes for Unholy Alliances are large, as befits a story involving Thanos and the Silver Surfer. There's also a cameo for the cyborg Superman, but the heart of this story is, once again, Kyle Rayner's concern that he may not be living up to the Green Lantern legacy, as he tries to fill the big boots left behind by Hal Jordan. Hal Jordan is now the supervillain Parallax, by the way. You can't have failed to notice, he mentions it every single time we see him, and this is no exception. The problem with this story is Kyle Rayner and Hal Jordan, who seem to be going through the same beats they've gone through whenever I read a story from this time period. Hal was once a golden boy and has now gone off the deep end, and Kyle frets that he's just not good enough. It has some interesting things to say about a villain's motives being ultimately noble, albeit misguided. For example, Kyle almost believes Thanos is in the right, as the Silver Surfer does with Hal. It's a fine enough story, but removed from Earth and his concerns with humanity, the surfer just isn't that interesting, and Kyle's story beats are pretty samey. I hope he developed more in his own book, because let's be honest, that kind of character growth isn't going to happen here, but this doesn't make me want to follow either character going forward. Number 13, Daredevil, Batman, Eye for an Eye, written by D.G. Chistester, 
Chichester, 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 whatever, with art by Scott McDaniel and Derek Fisher. Scott McDaniel's hyperkinetic art style is just one of the highlights of this really quite entertaining detective yarn in which Mr. Hyde and Two-Face team up to steal computer chips which are planted into human brains. It's a tale of double cross, not a shock for a Two-Face story, as Two-Face plans to use Mr. Hyde to ferment the chip slightly quicker than in a normal human. Matt Murdock knew Harvey Dent in law school, a nice touch, and he and Batman don't exactly get along, but the story does, chugging along very nicely indeed. This is quite an underrated team-up from an underrated artist, and writer D.D. Chichester does a good job in handling both characters. Number 12, Darkseid vs. Galactus, The Hunger, writer-artist John Byrne. More accurately, this is a Jack Kirby crossover, featuring, as it does, Kirby's epic creations from across the great IP divide. Galactus seeks to satiate his hunger by eating Apocalypse, and it's up to Darkseid and the New Gods to stop him. Essentially, this follows the standard template of a Galactus story. The Silver Surfer shows up to ready the planet, Galactus then arrives and either chows down or is thwarted and moves on. As usual for Burn, though, he mines these larger-than-life cosmic gods for pathos. Darkseid is playing a long game. Even here, which is chronologically his, and Galactus's first appearance, and the twist ending is as delightful as it is obvious, with the benefit of hindsight. Byrne follows on from his reasoning in his Fantastic Four run that Galactus is actually no more or less evil than anything else, and as such has a right to life that one would think his vocation would deny him. The scope for this one is epic, but surprisingly intimate. Galactus knows one day the surfer will betray him, and that adds an element of sadness to the proceedings. Burns' art is top-notch, and the story well thought out, beyond the usual Marvel DC who would win in a fight between. A hidden gem. Number 11, Punisher, Batman, Deadly Knights, by Chuck Dixon, with art by John Romita Jr. and Klaus Janssen. Chuck Dixon is one of the finest writers to ever work on Batman. His development of Tim Drake as the third Robin and Dick Grayson as Nightwing are some of the finest runs those characters have ever seen, and, with Birds of Prey, he developed a wonderful corner of the Bat universe. He has also had a decent run on Marvel's non-hero The Punisher, and as such was the perfect writer to work on this crossover. Ramita Jr. and Klaus Janssen's moody art is also very suited to this low-level crime tale, featuring the Joker and Jigsaw as special guest villains. It goes without saying that Batman hates the Punisher. Arguably, the Punisher is a character who would struggle to exist in the DC Universe anyway, but for Batman especially, the man is an affront to everything he stands for. This crossover tale does feature the main Batman, Bruce Wayne, and as such scores higher than the other Batman-Punisher team-up, which features Jean-Paul Valli, who was, by design, quite Punisher-like. Deadly Nights is fun, albeit a bit throwaway, which is why it's smack dab in the middle of the list. It's highly enjoyable, but not much more than that. Now, the top 10. Coming in at number 10, Batman and Spider-Man New Age Dawning. Written by J.M. DeMatteis, with art by Graham Nolan and Carl Kiesel. Taking his cues from the Ras Al Ghul stories of the early 1970s, here writer Dematis returns for Batman Spider-Man 2 to create a James Bond-style epic, crossing countries and providing high stakes. In this case, the destruction of New York City. 
Spider-Man essentially plays second fiddle on this one, his involvement really only coming about due to Ra's and the Kingpin's threat to destroy his home, and Spider-Man's sidekick status is why this one ranks a little bit lower than the other one. Sure, did Mateus still creates a tale with more depth than perhaps other stories of this kind, but these things need to have the heroes be on an equal footing, something this story lacks. The Kingpin and Raz are surprisingly well matched, with the final act reveal beautifully handled, and there are a number of good gags along the way, mostly from Batman's teasing of Spider-Man over the former's alleged nonsense of humour. Graham's art is not quite as expressive as Mark Bagley's, but it gets the job done. From the locale, to the investigation, to the machinations of the bad guys, to the Talia-Batman relationship, this is a Batman story all the way, with Spider-Man essentially along for the ride. But it's a good ride, and that's what matters. Number 9. Marvel and DC Presents, featuring the Uncanny X-Men and the New Teen Titans number 1. That's a mouthful. Written by Chris Claremont, with art by Walt Simonson and Terry Austin. The biggest surprise regarding this X-Men Teen Titans meetup is that it was Walt Simonson drawing it, not John Byrne. Byrne would seemingly be the obvious choice, given his history with the X-Men, and that the other two-thirds of the quintessential X-Men creative team are on board. Taking his cue from Superman vs. the Amazing Spider-Man, Clermont throws everything into this story. Not only the Titans and the X-Men, a total of 14 characters, there are also the main bad guys, Darkseid and Dark Phoenix, Jack Kirby's Fourth World Concepts, Deathstroke the Terminator, and Walt Simonson channeling his inner Kirby to provide a comic that is truly epic. The art is stupendous throughout, and even had elements that would be borrowed by Avengers vs. X-Men years later, with the Phoenix Force possessing Cyclops. Clermont handles the Titans well. Darkseid proves once again to be a great villain, even if he doesn't seem to know who the Titans are. All told, though, this is another example of what can be done when the creators are firing on all cylinders. We can only be left to wonder what the proposed sequel by Marv Wolfman and George Perez would have looked like. Number 8. The Incredible Hulk vs. Superman, written by Roger Stern with art by Steve Rude. The Incredible Hulk vs. Superman is one of the underrated crossover books on the list. When Michael and I covered this on Hey Kids Comics, I was surprised by the feedback we got from people who didn't even know it existed. Which is a real shame. In Roger Stern, it has a smart, mature writer who knows his stuff. And in Steve Rude, it had an artist born to draw stories set in Marvel's golden age, the 1960s. This crossover takes the opportunity to have the feel of the early days. Even though it's ostensibly set in the present day, Stern instead ignores current day continuity headaches and just plumps for a simple, no-nonsense, untold tale about Superman and the Hulk's first meeting. And it's wonderful. Rude draws Superman in the traditional Joe Schuster style, meaning he's stocky and squinty-eyed, and the Superman I adore, the one who takes no shit. His Hulk is Jack Kirby all the way. Stern ties in continuity as necessary, but doesn't let it bother him over much. He knows this is a story that neither party can really refer to again, so he's just out to have a ball and weave a great yarn. Which he does. Well worth tracking down if you can find a copy. Number 7. Superman and the Fantastic Four, The Infinite Destruction, written by Dan Jurgens, with art by Dan Jurgens and Art Tiber. The biggest surprise on the list was this one, in both how much I enjoyed it and how far it jumped up the list. Based on memory alone, I had this much further down. Purely in terms of presentation, this was the first Marvel DC crossover to be published as a Treasury edition since Batman Hulk in 1981, and writer-artist Dan Jurgens takes every opportunity to exploit the format with massive splash pages and cool imagery. Secondly, the story is pretty cool. 
Superman finds out that Galactus had a hand in Krypton's destruction. A horrible idea in regular continuity, a stupendous one in an Elseworld story like this one. Likewise, Galactus has had his eye on Superman as a potential herald for many years, and thus we get the great image of a golden Superman, looking like he stepped off the cover of all those Silver Age annuals, helping Galactus find planets to eat. The third masterstroke was including the cyborg Superman, who started life as Hank Henshaw, a pastiche of Reed Richards. Add into this the conclusion. It's Franklin Richards' Superman action figure that provides the impetus for Superman to reject Galactus' programming, thereby securing his reputation as a hero and role model for kids. Ultimately, though, this is a really fun, engaging and hugely entertaining entry into the Marvel DC stakes. There's a great wraparound cover by Jurgens and Alex Ross, and one notion I simply adore is present in this story. See, in the DC TV universe, the Marvel movies exist, but Jurgens introduced that idea here, with Franklin and Ben Grimm being fans of Superman the Animated Series, which in the Marvel Universe is a cartoon about a fictional being. This is often overlooked. Superman Fantastic Four is often overlooked, not least by me, but this was just a blast. Number six. Spider-Man and Batman and Disordered Minds, written by Jim DeMatteis, with art by Mark Bagley, Scott Hanna and Mark Farmer. This, the first team-up between the wall-crawling wonder and the Dark Knight detective, is the almost definitive 90s crossover. Batman reached the pinnacle of his popularity in the 90s, as did the Joker, and DC capitalised on this by churning out tons of Bat books of varying quality, and leading to the overexposure of the Joker that exists to this day. Over in Spider-Man, the serial killer Carnage became inexplicably popular, a harsher, rougher, less interesting version of Venom. The initial appearances of Carnage fueled the speculator market and became hot ticket items. Add to this the definitive late 90s art of Mark Bagley and Scott Hanna, and you have a crossover that couldn't miss, even if it wasn't very good. Fortunately, someone had the bright idea to pair all this 90s madness up with a decent writer, Jean-Marc DeMatteis. DeMatteis had a well-earned reputation for spiking his tales with large doses of psychoanalysis, giving them heavy themes that belied their origins as pulp fiction. Such is it here. DeMatteis composes a well-structured tale of a hard-ass behavioural psychologist, Cassandra Breyer, who sees her ticket to fame and fortune by implanting a chip in noted criminals like Carnage and the Joker. Essentially, this lobotomizes them, removing their violent tendencies, which brings her into conflict with both Spider-Man and Carnage's doctor, Ashley Kafka, who both feel that you can't just reprogram people like they're a defective computer. Typical of DeMatteis, this kind of moral quandary is thrown into an otherwise straightforward Batman-must-fight-Spider-Man's-villain and vice-versa story that manages to hit the right beats visually while still providing something for the readers to chew on. Bagley's art is top draw, as ever, and whilst it's never really as funny as a Joker-Spider-Man meetup could be, it still manages to be both entertaining and even slightly thought-provoking. Number 5, DC Special Series number 27, Batman vs. The Incredible Hulk. Written by Len Wein with art by José Luis Garcia López and Dick Giordano. 
Boasting magnificent art by Garcia Lopez, Batman vs. the Hulk runs the gamut between gritty 70s reinvention and surrealistic camp, when the Shaper of Worlds and the Joker team up to reorder the world in their own image. Only the Batman and Bruce Banner, here working on a new gamma gun at Wayne Tech, can stop them. This is Bronze Age comics madness at its best. From goofy schemes to gruesome kills, the juxtaposition of an era when comics were trying desperately to put the silliness of the past behind them and embrace a more mature direction. This wants to straddle that line, but falls over onto the goofy side on more than one occasion. However, who cares when the result is this joyous? Ween channels the TV incarnation of the Hulk, probably a wise decision, even as he emphasises the changes in Batman since he was a major TV star, and the story, 65 pages of it, never lets up or lets the reader breathe for even a second. This is also a wise move, because if the reader did stop and think for a moment, they'd likely come to the conclusion that this actual story was madder than a bag of cats. As with John Buscema on the second Superman-Spider-Man team-up, we are treated to an artist primarily known for one company, in this case Garcia Lopez and DC, let loose on another company's characters and he does not disappoint. His depiction of the Hulk is stunning, not least in the transformation sequences. Batman versus the Incredible Hulk has many standout scenes, even if it's stretching credibility somewhat that Batman could outfight the Hulk not once but twice, but hey... Superhero comics stretch credibility every issue and twice in double-sized blowouts, so par for the course. Not as good as either Superman Spider-Man, this is still nevertheless a supremely entertaining read, best savoured in its original treasury format. Number 4. JLA Avengers, issues 1 through 4, written by Kurt Busiek with art by George Perez. Ostensibly the best of the Marvel DC crossovers, Jail Avengers, which is what I call it, managed to be worthy of the wait, and not inconsiderable achievement given the history of the project. Originally conceived in 1982, internal politics killed it stone dead until, against all the odds, it rose, Jean Grey-like, from the ashes. A square-bound, four-issue prestige format limited series with career-best art from the legendary George Perez and a galaxies-wide destructive storyline from Kurt Busiek. If this was to be the last time DC and Marvel were to collaborate, and it is as of this writing, it was a glorious conclusion. Featuring every single character that has ever been a member of the Avengers or the Justice League, a situation that nearly wiped Perez out, this is THE Marvel DC crossover, featuring iconic image after iconic image. The best of these is Superman wielding Captain America's shield and Thor's mighty hammer, Mjolnir, or Mjolnir, as they say in Thor The Dark World. Apparently there are some people who react with scorn to that image. Those people are joyless assassins of fun. Busiek was the perfect writer for this project, his encyclopedic knowledge of DC and Marvel comics allowing him to create a story with the requisite amount of fan service, but one that also stood alone for readers who weren't as knowledgeable as he. In fact, DC editorial killed the part of the story they felt was for the older fans, and wanted him to concentrate on the new versions of certain characters like The Flash and The Green Lantern. Nevertheless, JL Avengers is a stunning achievement. Top 3 Number 3. Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man. Written by Jerry Conway, with art by Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano, with aid and assistance by Neil Adams and Terry Austin, and loads of other people as well, I'm sure. This was the big one. The first. 
oft imitated, really bettered. Created by writers and artists who knew what they were working on, servicing character and plot admirably with stupendous poster-worthy art and iconic matchups. This had never been done before, and the creators didn't know if it would ever be done again, so they threw everything into it, and it shows. Sure, read today, it's a bit melodramatic, as was the style of the time, and the story really does tick those boxes with the choices made, but there's nothing wrong with giving your audience what they want from time to time. There's a time to be creatively daring, and a time to be crowd-pleasing, and this is definitely the latter. Superman is stalwart and true, Spider-Man neurotic and plagued with self-doubt, yet they have more in common than they could ever possibly believe. The choice of villains is also very obvious, but makes total sense. Lex Luthor and Dr. Octopus are both mad scientists, with a mad-on for their respective adversaries. And Conway and Andrew, at that point the only creators to have experience handling both characters, deliver a compelling and hugely enjoyable romp. Referenced in both Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Superman the Movie, this first proper Marvel-DC team-up is an unalloyed delight. Number 2. Batman Captain America by John Byrne Batman and Captain America may not only be the perfect Marvel-DC crossover, it may be a perfect superhero comic. Now, go with me here. Superheroes came of age in the war and were primarily propaganda tools. Julius Schwartz had a certain level of success reinventing them as science fiction characters in the 50s, and Stanley and his partners added more realistic overtones and self-awareness in the 60s. But if the superhero was supposed to act as a role model for kids, extolling virtuous values and wholesome life lessons, Batman and Captain America is the pinnacle of that movement. Despite the omnipresent presence of war and the pretty high body count, you'd have to go a long way to find a less cynical, less grim and gritty take on these characters than in this book. And therein lies its genius. In what may very well be John Byrne's best work in the medium, Captain America and Batman are perfect examples of the heroic ideal. Loyal, brave and willing to die for what's right. Hell, in this story, even the Joker hates Nazis. None of the Sturm und Drang of other more worthy superhero comics for this story, no siree. This is a straightforward retelling of the Manhattan Project, with Batman and Captain America thrown together when they learn the Joker and the Red Skull are trying to hijack the Fat Boy atomic bomb. Great scenes between the two heroes abound, not least Captain America and Bucky working with Sergeant Rock and Easy Company, and Batman and Cap proving evenly matched in battle. Setting the story in World War II eliminates the need to shoehorn in any current continuity headaches and removes pointless cameos from other Marvel or DC characters, resulting in a linear, clean and perfect slice of superhero hokum, and that's not meant in any derogatory way. Batman and Captain America is a little slice of superhero heaven and a joy from start to finish. And finally, number one, Marvel Treasury Edition number 28, Superman and Spider-Man, written by Jim Shooter with art by John Buscema and various other people, I'm sure. It kind of had to be, really, didn't it? I mean... Purely on a nostalgia level, this was the first Marvel DC team-up I had read, so it has a special place in my heart. Whilst I read it, 
not in the magnificent oversized treasure edition as seen over the pond. It was published by Marvel UK in magazine size, so it was still reasonably cinematic. I remember my granddad buying it for me, only vaguely aware of what it was. I read it until the cover fell off. But this isn't just nostalgia at play. I genuinely think this is better than the first Superman-Spider-Man team-up, and better than a lot of the others. For one, the story isn't as cliched or tick-boxy. The first one has all the elements and is undeniably fun, but it's oh-so-melodramatic. Superman is a tad stiff and the choice of villains rather obvious. None of this is a bad thing. But for the second one, the choices aren't so predictable. Sure, writer Jim Shooter created the Parasite, so his inclusion here is foregone, but he's a good bad guy and a good choice for a story that sees the Man of Steel go up against the Lord of Latveria, Doctor Doom. Doom is a tad left field for this story, but a great choice in retrospect. Shooter also has the benefit of having seen two Superman movies at this point, and so the Superman he writes is definitely Christopher Reeve's version, confident and self-assured, but more human and likeable. Likewise, Spider-Man is well represented, and Shooter throws in two lovely scenes with Superman fighting the Hulk and Spider-Man tackling Wonder Woman. It's also an opportunity to see Marvel mainstay John Buscema draw Superman, and he does not disappoint. Shooter takes full opportunity to emphasise the difference between Marvel and DC when he job swaps Peter Parker and Clark Kent, putting Peter at the Daily Planet and Clark at the Bugle. Overall though, this is the template for a Marvel-DC crossover. It's big and cinematic, with great set pieces and wonderful cameos, and it really does exploit the idea to its fullest. And that's why it's number one. As of this recording, there have been no further DC Marvel crossovers since, as I mentioned, JL Avengers in 2003. And with both companies now being part of larger conglomerates, where they are seen as simply IP, there's no real desire to do any. What does it serve Disney's needs now to have Spider-Man meet the Flash? As such, further meetings between these two titans of publishing remain a fanboy dream. Other companies have continued with the crossover mayhem though. Pulp Heroes, Tarzan, Doc Savage and the Spirit have met Batman and Superman has clashed with the Thundercats. Some of these are fun, others like the DC heroes meeting the Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters rather silly, albeit entertaining. Still, one wonders what modern creators could do with an intercompany crossover. What would a Greg Rucker written Lois Lane Jessica Jones team up be like? Maybe Bendis could get his long-dreamt-of-Daredevil-Batman tale. Hell, get Kelly Sue on Aquaman Submariner, Gail Simone on Wonder Woman Captain Marvel, or Fraction on Jimmy Olsen Rick Jones. But that's what's great about comics. They're as limitless as our imaginations. A historic moment tonight. The Berlin Wall can no longer contain the East German people. It is 1989. After 28 years of dividing a city and symbolizing the divide of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall opens up. And from there, everything changes. Fallen Walls, Open Curtains is a podcast miniseries from Pop Culture Affidavit and hosted by me, Tom Panneries. 
From November 2019 until December 2021, I am going to take a look at the events that took place 30 years ago, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ending with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Along the way, I will be flashing back to the landmark and not-so-landmark pieces of popular culture that reflected and defined the Cold War. The first episode will drop on November 9th, 2019, and future episodes will be released quarterly at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. Right, let's consult the email sack. Unidentified fanboy object is our email from Nathaniel Wayne. Hey there, Andy. Just got done with your episode on UFO. You've probably picked up the pattern by now that I've never seen Jerry Anderson stuff, live action or otherwise, so I don't have that much to say on the main topic. Seemed fun, though. Glad you liked it. It's always fun hearing you, even if I don't have a first clue what you're on about. (laughs) Thank you very much. So I'm going to pick on something you mentioned in your feedback response about negative online reactions to progressive agenda. Sorry, don't know what happened there. Anyways, you mentioned that you believe many of these people are playing up their negativity for the sake of clicks. And yeah, most of them are. I can even quantify it. Before I do, let me stress, I don't think any of these people are outright lying about their feelings or that they're saying something in direct opposition to what they actually think. Rather, they're taking the things they do feel and exaggerating them whilst focusing on the negative. Notice how many of these Twitter feeds and channels never praise anything except maybe something that goes against the liberal agenda. Damn it, there it goes again. I won't name names, but if I browse through the recent uploads on a channel and open negativity appears to outnumber positivity by 50% or more, I know I want to steer clear. But like I said, I don't think they lie about their opinions, but they do play them up. And here's where quantifying this comes in. I don't often do 10 worst lists over on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel. Anytime I have, it was counterbalanced with the 10 best on the same topic. But I can tell you that whenever I do that, as I did with, say, 10 best Doctor Who episodes written by Stephen Moffat and the equivalent 10 worst of the same among others, the worst list, the negative one, gets double the views of the positive one. And whilst I don't truly go off all that often, people remember when I do. My very negative review of the recent remake of The Lion King is my most viewed movie review this year by a pretty heavy margin. So it's not hard to see why so many of these people lean so hard on the negative end. On platforms like YouTube, at least it's demonstrably more lucrative. There you go. I'm happy to validate your paranoia that this nonsense is at least partially artificial. Or maybe I'm just spreading dissent as part of the queer agenda. (laughs) Great listening, Geekly Yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Yeah, I... I just find that a shame. I really do. I think, you know... I've said before, if you go through the list of this show, the negative shit is... I think you can count on one and the number of times I've done a negative show. And I'm just... I know I'm in a minority. I know that negativity is the way forward. Uh, I just don't want to go, though. You know? And like you, an awful lot of the YouTube channels that I watch, which isn't that many... I've recently discovered a cool one, actually. It's two young girls. must be about 19 or so. And they're watching Star Trek The Next Generation for the first... Well, one of them's a noob and one of them... It's one of her favourite shows. And they are joyously, infectiously fun to watch because there is no negativity to it. Even when they're not enjoying something, they'll just have a laugh at it. And it's it's actually just so pleasing to watch some somebody enjoying something for once. You know, there's a part of me that just really is dreading the rise of Skywalker coming out. 
because it's just going to be a flood of negativity from the people who's already made their mind up about whether they're going to like it or not. Do you know what? Here's a challenge for anyone listening to this who's in the negative side of the Star Wars stuff. Um, and I don't mind if you are. doesn't bother me in the slightest, to be perfectly honest with you. But uh, if you really are this negative on it, don't watch it. Don't watch The Rise of Skywalker. Never watch it. Don't watch it illegally. Don't watch it for free on TV or cable or whatever. Don't watch it when it's streaming. Don't buy it on Blu-ray. Never, ever watch it. And if you never, ever watch it, my respect for you will go through the roof. And also, I won't have to listen to any whining from you about how bad it is. Deal? Yeah, it's bullshit. We know they're going to watch it, don't we? Anyway, thank you, Nathaniel. Uh, Spider-Man thoughts from Lizanne. Hey, it's Lizanne Oswalt on YouTube. That's O-S-W-A-L-T. Spelling is out, as I heard a helpful podcaster say they had trouble finding me. So there you go. Impressive podcast, as always. I do remember the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. Uh, I think I may have seen an episode or two of this, but Silvermane stopped at toddler age in the cartoon show. Still, it was fun. Yeah, Stan had a few oopsies, but to be fair few writers picked up here and there. He was writing most of the comics and he definitely doesn't deserve his bad press. He wasn't Bob Kane and didn't try to steal credit. Most of that was probably done by the other guys that founded Marvel. And whilst Kirby and Ditko deserve half the credit, Stan also deserves half. He did help create all that made Marvel work. I think the Kingpin wasn't in the cartoon, just Silvermane and his niece and the lizard, I think. I never really bought that the kingpin only had 12 or 20% body fat. That's how a man with little body fat looks. Look at for how a man with little body fat looks. Look at Lex Luthor. Now, a sumo wrestler, he can have a ton of muscle under that, but the percentage comics always give makes no sense. Oh well, can't wait to hear the next podcast. You are very welcome. Thank you for emailing in, Lizanne, as ever. Uh, Robin of Sherwood is our next email from Dion Balasakan. Hello. Aloha, Mr. Andrew. Hello, Dion. I'm an occasional listener of your show, and I always read your show summaries when you drop an episode on the Two True Freaks Network. So because of your Robin of Sherwood review, I am now binging the series. Thank you, sir, for introducing me to the so far epic retelling of the Robin Hood legend. Keep up the great work. Regards, Dion B. Thank you, Dion. Well, I asked Dion as well... Um, what I could do to get him to be a regular listener. And uh, he says, just there's a lot of podcasts he's selective, which is fine. But I am apparently a cut above average, which I want on a t-shirt. Cut above average. <laughs> I could totally go with that, being a cut above average. Our next email is also about Robin the Hooded Man from Alan W. Wright. Andy, thank you for the shout out for my Robin Hood website, boldoutlaw.com and your superb coverage and your superb coverage of the first series of Robin of Sherwood. I hope you'll cover the next two seasons, possibly even the audio and novel continuations, by Spiteful Puppet and Chin Beard Books. Oh, I did not know there were novel continuations. I knew they'd got together and done an audio version of... Was it Richard Carpenter's script for the film that was proposed to continue the series or wrap the series up or something. I know they've done an audio version of that, but I didn't know there was novel continuations. I'll have to have a look into that. The King 
King's Fool, Alan continues, is my favourite episode of the show, but like you, I thought the ending was rushed and needed a third act, or even a second episode. I'm not sure the extra material needed to be about Robin getting his revenge on King Richard, as you suggested. I'd say, more importantly, it should have been about Robin regaining the trust of his band. Robin pretty much ignored all their concerns to follow Richard, and yet the episode has Hearn the Hunter just magic everyone back together. Maybe they should have had Robin seek out the other members and convince them to come back. The setup in that episode was so good, but there really wasn't any long-term consequences to Robin's folly. It was just all solved by Hearn. That's a very good point. Yeah, he pretty much turned his back on his friends throughout most of that episode. So yeah, you're right. A second episode of reuniting the gang. Maybe they could have ended the first season with them fractured and just had Hearn save Marion. And maybe the second series could have opened with exactly as you suggest, him having to go and eat crow with with them and apologise. But yeah, apparently that, that wasn't on the cards. Every so often when I'm reading medieval history, I'll come across another little nugget that was reused in Robin of Sherwood. Richard Carpenter truly did his research, albeit with dramatic licence. When the show first aired in North America, it was just called Robin Hood. Apparently they thought Americans were too stupid to figure out that a show called Robin of Sherwood would be about Robin Hood. It aired on Showtime in the US, then later it ran on PBS stations, which is where I first saw it. Canadians, like me, often discovered British TV by watching the shows on PBS from across the border. Doctor Who, Monty Python, Faulty Towers, The Sandbaggers, Star Cops, Blackadder, and Mind Your Language. Okay, they can't all be winners. <laughs> Yeah, Mind Your Language was a sitcom. Uh, I believe it was an ITV sitcom about a young teacher trying to teach a bunch of immigrants English. And it, it the class was composed of horrible cliches of Indians and Chinese and, and every ethnicity you can think of. And yes, it's not aged at all well. There's a part of me that likes to think it didn't age well the minute after it heard, but... I think it ran a couple of series, so somebody must have watched it. I found out the show's real title from a classmate who had one of the novelizations, and I gobbled up scraps of news from Starlog and UK magazines like Starburst. They were sold at comic shops alongside Doctor Who Monthly. Research was really a lot different in those pre-internet days. When I started my Robin Hood website, and when I told people of my scholarly interest in Robin Hood, I often encountered people who would say to me something like, there's this one Robin Hood show I really like that you've probably never heard of, and almost always they'd be talking about Robin of Sherwood. If the show had premiered on the US Showtime channel today, it would probably have hit the cultural landscape in North America, the same way that Dexter and Homeland did. Instead, it often gets left out of American recaps of the Robin Hood legend, with all its innovations being credited to Costner's Prince of Thieves instead. Ugh, Costner's Prince of Thieves. Anyway, I also downloaded more episodes of your show. I remember buying that 20th anniversary Star Trek comic when it was new. I was a big fan of DC's Trek. I also remember watching the Leonard Nimoy guest appearance on TJ Hooker when it first aired, although all I could recall was that Nimoy was playing Hooker's ex-partner gone somewhat bad. I probably watched at least a couple of seasons of the show just for Shatner, but I can hardly remember anything about it. You were right. That show is eminently forgettable. Thanks again for covering Robin of Sherwood, and your delightful style has earned you another regular listener. Alan W. Wright from BoldOutlaw.com Thank you, Alan. That's much appreciated. I do try and credit sources, especially when I use quite a lot of stuff from what they've written. I didn't use a great deal from Bold Outlaw, but it was such a well 
designed and well-written website with a lot of really interesting information on there. Like, for example, I, I directly lifted the nugget that made Marion in the original ballads was a lot more kick-ass before Hollywood got hold of her and turned her into a stereotypical damsel in distress. And Robin of Sherwood attempted to write that wrong. That was definitely on your website. Uh, so And it's great. So if you've got uh, any interest whatsoever in the Robin Hood legend, go and check out boldoutlaw.com. It's a very, very good site, very informative and very helpful in the making of that show about Robin of Sherwood. So thank you to Dion, Alan and Nathaniel for emailing in. Uh, I'll be back next time with another show. I don't know what it is yet because, you know, I haven't written it. Sometimes I'm already working on them. Sometimes it's just as the mood strikes. If you want to email me about anything at all, uh, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address, and I'll be back next time. It's all going to be okay. You keep thinking that. See you next time. Bye-bye.